would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. You can also find the passage that we're going to be looking at today printed for you in your Bible, or excuse me, in your bulletins. And regardless of whether you're looking in your bulletin or in your Bible, you'll notice the passage that we have for today is quite lengthy. Uh, verse Chapter 2, verse 12, all the way down through the end of chapter 3. So I'm not going to read the entire section uh, right now at the beginning. That would take us about 10 minutes to read that. Um, I'm going to read just the first portion of that from verse 12 down through verse 32. And then we're going to be reading the other portions as we work our way uh, through the sermon. So I'd invite you to listen as I read to you from chapter 2 of 2 Samuel beginning in verse 12. Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahatnaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, as, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants nineteen men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin three hundred and sixty of Abner's men. 
And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all day, all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we have it and can read it. And we pray that as we do so, that you would teach us about the stories of our own history. That you would teach us about who you are. That you would teach us about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would tell us what it looks like for us to live now in your kingdom. Would you do all of this through the work of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are picking up where we left off in 2 Samuel a couple of weeks ago. And uh, just to refresh your memories of why we're actually looking at 2 Samuel. Uh, This is certainly true about pretty much any passage in the Bible, but particularly here of 2 Samuel. One of the reasons why we're going through this book is so that we can learn the history of the Bible, that we can learn our own history, the the history of our forefathers in the faith. That's important for us to know, these, these true accounts of what took place. But another reason why we read 2 Samuel is so that we can grow in our understanding of who God is. And that we can learn in deeper ways about God's grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one other reason why we are reading 2 Samuel is so that we can learn how we are to live as God's people now. As we look at how God's people were being instructed to live in the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, it helps us to know how we are to live as God's people now in this world. So today we're going to actually see three things. Two of them are negative. Uh, Two of them will help us to see and to acknowledge uh, something that's not good, something that's not right, something that's wrong in God's people and perhaps in our own hearts as well. And then one positive thing that we'll see that hopefully will fill us with hope and strength. So we'll see the stupidity of our sin and we'll see the seriousness of the problem of, of pursuing the wrong glory. And then we will see the stability that comes as we find our hope only in the promises of God. So first of all, let's look and see the stupidity of our sin. The definition of stupidity is a behavior that shows a lack of good sense or judgment. That's a pretty good description of what we're doing when we sin. We know what God's Word says. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're not supposed to do. But we lack the good sense or judgment to follow it. And we've got plenty examples of that kind of stupidity here in this passage. The first example comes from Abner himself. And it's in the part of the passage that we have read beginning in verse 12 down through verse 32. The, the, the narrator, the author, is giving us several different scenes or events that took place in these verses, and they all involve Abner. Now remember, Abner had been the commander of Saul's army, and even though Saul was defeated and killed, Abner survived. And in defiance of the Lord God Almighty, who had set David up and anointed David to be king over all of Israel... Abner took things into his own hands and decided that he was going to take one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and make him over, make him king over part of Israel. This is who Abner is. This is the Abner that we're reading about in these verses. So we read in verse 12 that 
Abner and the troops that were loyal to him left their base in the north and they began to march south. Now, I know it doesn't say this in the text, but this was a clear act of aggression on Abner's part. He was bringing an army that was in, 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 in antagonizing to David and his army. And he was marching south toward David where David was. And in response, Joab, the commander of David's troops, and the loyal troops to David began to leave their base in the south and to march north to meet Abner and his troops. It was a defensive move. They met in this place called Gibeon, and when they were there, Abner suggested that there be a competition between the soldiers of Abner and the soldiers of Joab. And what it ended up being was an all-out bloodbath with not only the 24 soldiers who were competing dying, but were told that the rest of the soldiers got involved and it was a fierce battle. Abner and his army were beaten, and so we read in eight, verses 18 and following, that they left, and they left the area and began to go back north toward their home base. But one of Joab's brothers, a man by the name of Asahel, went after Abner, and he did so apparently with some great focus and drive. Eventually, as he caught up to Abner, on two occasions, Abner warned Asahel. He looked back and saw Asahel coming, and he said, Stop. Don't do this. Take some of the spoil of our men if you need to, but do not come after me. And Asahel didn't listen. And he continued to pursue and he got closer to, to Abner. And again, Abner said, stop, don't do this. Don't make me kill you. But Asahel didn't listen. And Abner being the more experienced warrior, the more experienced soldier, soldier easily took care of Asahel by killing him with his spear. Well, we read another scene that unfolded for us in verses 24 and following. Joab and his other brother then heard what had happened and went after Abner and his soldiers. They caught up with them and the two armies squared up against each other to fight. And almost with a sense of whining in his voice, Abner cries out to Joab to put an end to the bloodbath. Joab relented and he put an end to the pursuit and the two men and the two armies went back to their bases. Now, as we read this, particularly the last part of this passage that we just looked at, we might feel a little bit of sympathy for Abner. I mean, he did try to warn Asahel. He tried to warn him twice. He said, stop, don't come after me. And he, he, he also uh, did everything he could to, to try to get Joab to stop the bloodbath. But what we must remember about Abner is who he was. He had been deliberately testing Joab and David's armies. He had been showing defiance against the Lord's anointed David. Abner clearly knew that David was God's anointed. And yet, in defiance of the Lord God Almighty, Abner went and got Ishbosheth and put him as king over part of Israel. He knew that God's promise, he knew that God's plan was for David to be king, but he went against the Lord and he went against David. And his marching south was what created all of this chaos that we've just read. It's the stupidity of sin. 
in the midst of knowing what is right, in the midst of knowing what God's plan is, uh, Abner says, never mind that. Never mind what God's decree and promise is. I will assert my own will and my own authority. It's the stupidity of sin. We see another example of that at the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now, not with Abner, but with David himself. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chileab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath, and the fifth, Shepatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David at Hebron. Now, the, the, the narrator, the author here, gives us the, the picture that David's rule was growing stronger and stronger. And one of the ways that that was happening was that David was taking many wives and having many children. Uh, the practice of polygamy, of taking multiple wives, was a common practice in the ancient Near East. The, the nations around Israel practiced this uh, in plentiful ways. It was often done for strategic and for uh, political reasons. So it was a common practice that David would see everywhere around him. But even though it was a common practice among the pagan nations, the practice of polygamy was not something that God condoned. And in fact, it was something that the scriptures prohibited. Genesis chapter 2, God gives us the institution of marriage. Adam and Eve, one man and one woman, to come together and be fruitful and to multiply and have dominion over the earth. And if that wasn't clear enough, when God gathered His people together to give Him His, their law, His law at Mount Sinai, He gave them a law, He gave them rules that were to govern the kings of Israel. And one of those rules in Deuteronomy 17 says that kings must not take many wives because it will cause their heart to be divided. David knew the Lord's instructions clearly. He knew the call not to follow the customs of the ancient Near Eastern cultures, but to follow the Lord's word. But it's almost as if David said, never mind God's clear instruction. I will assert my own will. I will take matters into my own hands and I will fulfill my own desires. And as we're going to see later as we get into 2 Samuel in the coming weeks and months, the consequences of David doing this were devastating. If you know much about 2 Samuel, then when you read some of these names that are David's sons, you'll know some of the tragedy that came up in David's family. Sexual assault, murder, treachery. The names Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah. Incredible devastation in the family of David. David and Abner give us these examples of the stupidity of sin. 
And brothers and sisters in Christ, it's true for us as well. How often do we know what is right? We know what God's Word says that we are to do. We know what God's Word says that we should not do. But it's almost as if we say, never mind that. I'm going to do what I think is best in my own eyes. I'm going to assert my own supposed authority. I'm going to impose my own will and I will violate the goodness and the truth of God's word. And it can often result in devastating consequences. It shows the stupidity of our sin. I mean, just think about some of the things that the word tells us and how we just simply and easily disregard it. God's Word gives us very good instructions about how we ought to treat things like food and alcohol properly. And we disregard it. God's Word is clear about gossiping and talking about others behind their backs. And we disregard it. God's Word is clear about cultivating lustful thoughts and how we should not do so. And yet we do so with great ease. How we use words to tear down rather than building up. How we lack peace in our relationships with others. And when we do those things, we're no different than Peter. We're no different than Abner or David. It's the stupidity of our sin. But there's another negative thing here that we need to see in the passage. It is, as we see, the seriousness of the problem of seeking the wrong glory. Now we see that in verses 6 and following from chapter 3. We read that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ea. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Now, what's going on here with this with this part of the passage? We're told that. In verse 1, we're told that the house of David was growing stronger and stronger and the house of Saul was becoming weaker and weaker. But within the house of Saul, we're told that Abner was making himself stronger and stronger in the house of Saul. And one day, Ishbosheth came to Abner. One of Saul's sons came to Abner and he accused him of taking one of Saul's concubines. Now, if that was true... It would be a serious offense against the house of Saul and Ishbosheth. We're not actually told whether it's true or not. But what we are true, what we are told is how Abner responded. He exploded with anger at the accusation. That's what we get in verses 8 through 11. In fact, he was so angry at what Ishbosheth was accusing him of that he decided that he would switch his allegiance from Ishbosheth to David. 
And in fact, we read in verses 12 through 16 that he went to David and pledged his allegiance to David, saying that he would work for David and he would bring the tribes of the north into a a relationship with David. And then we read in verses 17 through 19 that he went even further and began to work the back channels and to talk to the tribes and to to talk to the people of God and to, to make sure that they would put their allegiance with David. So why did Abner respond with such anger? And why did he switch his allegiances from Ishbosheth to David? It seems like he's completely overreacting, especially if he didn't do what he was accused of. Well, it's not because that Abner all of a sudden was deciding that he should follow what the Lord had said, that David was to be king. What was happening more so is that Abner was seeking his own glory. He saw that David was becoming stronger and stronger and that the people were liking David more and more. And he realized that he had a much better future on David's team than on that of Ishbosheth. He knew that he would win the approval of David if he would deliver the tribes that were following Ishbosheth. To be, to be in allegiance with David. At the very core, Abner was seeking his own well-being and his glory. And even Joab saw it. If you'll look at verses 24 and 25, which we're going to cover this in just a minute. But when Joab found out that Abner had switched his allegiance and talked to David and pledged his allegiance to David, listen to what Joab said in verse 24. Joab went to the king, that's to David, and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. Abner was more about his own well-being and his own position and his own glory than the glory of David, King David, and the glory of the Lord. And anytime someone seeks their own glory in the scriptures, it's a problem. Because the Lord is jealous for his own glory. Now there's another example of that here in this passage. It comes in verses 22 through 30. Not with Abner this time, but with Joab. So Abner and David form this agreement. And we read that Joab wasn't around when it happened. And Abner left. But then, in verse 22, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid that they had been on, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told to Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab said the words that we just looked at, almost accusing the king, what have you done Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he's gone? Don't you know that the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing? When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. They brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. 
Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever, forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. So what we see here is Joab pursuing his own glory rather than the glory of the Lord. Now how do we see that? Well, Abner and David had gotten together. They had talked and they had made an agreement. It's actually called, it's referred to as a covenant between Abner and David. Abner promised to do several things for David. He was going to be allegiant to him and he was going to transfer the allegiance of the tribes to David. We're not told what David was going to do for Abner, but we have every reason to expect that Abner probably had been promised a position in David's kingdom. And Joab would have known that. Joab found out that Abner had come and visited, and he went into an angry rage, and he even spoke inappropriately and even harshly to King David. You'd almost see him wagging his finger at David. How dare you? Don't you know what you did? We're not told if David said anything to him, but whatever he did say, if he said anything, wasn't satisfying to Joab because Joab decided to take matters into his own hands. And so he went after Abner. He pretended to have something to talk about. And then, when the time was right, he killed him in cold blood. Joab made it sound like it was to avenge his brother's death, Asahel. But there are two problems with that. First, we're told that Asahel died not in cold blood at the hands of Abner, but in a battle. And the right to avenge a family member who had been killed could only be done if it was done in cold blood, not if it was done in battle as it was. And on top of that, we are told on more than one occasion in this passage that David and Abner had made peace with one another. Did you see that twice in the passage? We read that David sent Abner away in peace. You see that in verses 21 and 22. Joab's actions were not about the good and the glory of King David and the Lord. And that's the reason why David responded with the curses in verse 29. Joab's actions were about his own well-being and his own glory, knowing that his adversary now possibly was going to be moving in on power that he would have under David's reign. He was afraid of his rival getting more power. And he saw Abner as a threat to Joab's own power. So through Joab and uh, through Abner, we see these examples of the serious problem that it is when we seek the wrong glory. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as Christians serving King Jesus, we must always assess our own hearts. We must always assess the motives for why and how we are serving our King. I mean, think about this. Think about the Lord's disciples, Jesus' disciples. He gathered them together to show them how the Passover was pointing ultimately to Him. And He gave them this wonderful gift of the Lord's Supper. And do you know what they did right after they celebrated the Lord's Supper together? They didn't 
begin to wring their hands that the one who was in their presence was about to go to the cross. That they, they didn't think about the amazing grace that was being shown to them through the Passover meal and now the Lord's Supper. What they did was get into an argument about which of them was the greatest. That's the human heart. One commentator put it this way, Though I profess to care only about Jesus' kingship, I fear I am far more concerned about my place in His regime than with the honor of His name. I want to be first in my area of the Christian ghetto, recognized, appreciated, well-received. Under the guise of service in the kingdom, I crave all the strokes I can get, even at Jesus' expense. Some of us know Joab all too well. How well do you know Joab? What are the ways that you need to put your... What are the ways that you are putting your agenda and your desires before that of King Jesus? You'll know when you're doing that because you'll find yourself bothered that your name isn't getting the recognition that you want it to get. Or your actions aren't being applauded in the ways that you want them to be. We need to be asking ourselves, how do we need to be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? What are the ways that we need to put the needs of others first as even more important than our own? Abner and Joab show us the serious problem that it is when we seek our own glory rather than that of the Lord. Well, those are some pretty discouraging things that we can see here. Things that we need to reflect on our own hearts. The stupidity of our sin. Uh, seeking uh, the wrong glory. But there is, there is good news here in this passage. There is, there is uh, something here that should fill us with hope and encouragement and strength. And it's this. That we will find stability and strength and encouragement as we once again put our hope in God's promises that are true. We see that a couple ways here. The first is something that David shows us here toward the end of the passage. After he heard that Joab had killed Abner. I want you to listen. Listen to how David responded in verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the buyer. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. What we see here is a picture of David functioning as a true peacemaker. Now, how do, how do you see that here in these verses? Well, first of all, remember who Abner was. Abner was an antagonist to David. Abner had been spending his life trying to undo the Lord's anointed. To undo Daniel's kingship. That's who Abner was. And when Abner was killed, 
How did David respond? Well, look at the things that he did. The first thing that he did was that he buried Abner in Hebron. Now, for us, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But for the people that were reading this, that would have been a big deal. Hebron in the south, kind of base for David, was known as a a sacred burial spot for the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith. Some of the greatest uh, forerunners of God's people had been buried in Hebron. And he takes Abner of all people and buries him there. And I was trying to think about what, what kind of similar thing would we have that would get our attention like that. And this is, it's imperfect, but here's what I came up with. It would be like if the president had buried Osama bin Laden in Arlington Cemetery. That's how, that's how amazing this is. It's not all that David did. He also marched himself in the funeral procession. And as he did so, he wept passionately and he offered this deep song of lament on Abner's behalf. He fasted for the day. And even when the people came and tried to get him to eat, he refused to eat until the sun went down. David did all of that because he was being a peacemaker for the sake of the unity of the people of God. He was being a peacemaker. And when the people saw it, we read in verse 36, they were amazed at David and they were pleased at what was happening. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as David functions as a unifier, as a peacemaker, he is pointing forward to the greater peacemaker, the greater King David that was to come, Jesus Christ himself. As Paul tells us in Romans, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God. Paul says also in Colossians 1, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. We get justification. We get reconciliation. We get peace with the Lord God Almighty only through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross. It is only through Jesus, it is only Jesus that is powerful enough to redeem us from the stupidity of our sin and for the ways that we seek the wrong glory. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're online and you're not a Christian, then you need to understand this so clearly. There is no other way, there is no other place whereby you can have peace with God. It comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in His finished work on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. No matter what you would pursue, no matter what you would go after in this life to seek peace in your own soul, it may give you satisfaction for the moment, but there is no peace eternally apart from Jesus Christ and His atoning work on the cross. There's good news here for Christians as well. There's an important and needed reminder for us as well. The promise from God Himself that we have that because we are in Christ now and forever we have peace with God. God is not our adversary. God is not our enemy. He is not our antagonist. We are His loving, gracious children. He is our loving and gracious Father. 
brothers and sisters in Christ, the more that that sinks into our hearts and our minds, the more that the second promise that we have from this passage will become more precious and meaningful to us. Not only do we have the promise of the ultimate peacekeeper, Jesus, we also have the promise that Jesus is our ultimate king and that one day he is coming back. Remember the context of this passage. We talked about this weeks before. David had already been anointed king by the Lord as a young man. We, we talked about that that takes place in 1 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, that Steve's going to preach on in a couple of weeks, David is going to be crowned king over all of Israel, and he will reign for 33 more years. But when we read 2 Samuel chapters 2 and 3, you can't even begin to think that that would be happening. It's hard to see how David could become king in the midst of such chaos. We see peoples and armies and commanders, even David himself, doing things that should lead away from David being the king. We don't see here a kingdom of peace, but we see chaos in the kingdom. And yet, and yet... Despite how chaotic and messed up the situation seems, God promised that he would fulfill his promise in having David as king over his people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that reminds us God is in charge. God is sovereignly at work. God is fulfilling his promises even when it looks otherwise to us. King Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne in heaven and he will be returning. We're reminded of, we talked about that in Revelation chapter 11. As we looked at Revelation chapter 11 and we saw the seventh trumpet being described. The trumpet that was symbolizing when Jesus would return. And in uh, Revelation 11 we read that as the seventh angel blew the trumpet... There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. What an incredible reminder of the promise that King Jesus is the ultimate king and one day he is coming back. And as we meditate on that promise we have from God, it should mean a couple things for us as we finish. First thing is is that it ought to make an impact on how we live now as God's people. As God's people, we are... The servants, we are the disciples of King Jesus who is ruling and reigning. And so we have to live as he instructs us to live. Now, he instructs us to live in lots of ways, but let me give you just one in particular. Because Jesus is the ultimate peacekeeper, we must be people of peace. Think about all the passages in the scriptures that talk about the command to pursue peace. Things like Romans 14. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Hebrews 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
James 3, a harvest of righteousness is sown by is sown in peace by those who make peace. First Peter three, for whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. God's people are called to pursue what makes for peace and to strive for peace with everyone and to seek peace and to pursue it. A true story is told about a Christian man living in China during the last century. This Christian man was a farmer and he had cultivated a, a nice rice field on a hill near his, town, near his home. He had to work a hand pump to get the water through an irrigation system that had been set up that came to the bottom of the hill and he had to get it up to the top of the hill. And so he had was a lot of work to, uh, to hand crank that water uh, through the system up to his, uh, to his uh, field on the hill. And he had a neighbor. And the neighbor also had a field down toward the bottom of the hill. And the neighbor made a hole in the irrigation system so that as the Christian farmer was getting the water, it would go into the neighbor's field and not into his. And he would repair it and the neighbor would again divert the water into his own field. Eventually the Christian became very frustrated, understandably so. And so he sought out some of his Christian friends to ask advice on how he should respond. And he got lots of different answers. But one of them suggested that the Christian man look not so much at this situation as an opportunity to get justice for himself, but as an opportunity to pursue peace and to bless his neighbor. The Christian farmer agreed. And so the next day, the Christian farmer reset the irrigation system so that it would first pump water into the neighbor's field and then could very quickly and easily be diverted to bring water to his own field. Eventually, the neighbor came out and asked the Christian farmer why he would do such a thing. And the Christian farmer shared the gospel of grace and peace with the man who eventually became a Christian himself. How do you need to pursue and to strive for and to seek peace in this coming week? And how might God use that in a way that you can't even imagine? Now let me make just one quick clarification before I finish up. Talk to somebody after the first service as we were reflecting on this a little bit more. Striving for peace and seeking peace doesn't mean that we always have to give up everything. It certainly doesn't mean we ought to compromise on what is right and true. But even in the midst of standing for what is right and true, we still can be people who are pursuing peace in those conversations, in those relationships, in those ways that we stand for peace. The fact that Jesus is the ultimate king and that he's coming back not only means that we ought to be people living as he instructs as people of peace now, but it also has something to say about how we think about Tuesday. No matter what happens with the elections on Tuesday, King Jesus is ruling and reigning on his throne. He's at work causing all things to work for his glory and the good of his church. That must not be something that we just say that we believe. It must impact how we actually live, how we think, how we act. And how we speak. Our allegiance and our hope and our passions and our commitment must be to King Jesus first. And people 
should be able to see that that's what we believe by the way that we talk and act and think. Maybe especially this coming week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. We thank you for causing it to be written down. We thank you for preserving it over these many years so that as we read it, we know that we're reading the word of God. We thank you for instructing us on who you are, reminding us of the gospel of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching us what it looks like to live in your kingdom. Help us, Father, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be the people that you desire us to be, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.